So we are excited to uh, bring that seminar to Chapel Rock. Uh, that'll be Saturday, November 18th. Uh, the cost to you is only $30, but you need to, it's an all-day thing, um, it's, it, a lunch is provided, but you will need to sign up at uh, the kiosk in the lobby with Debbie McLeod. Um, otherwise, if you sign up online, it's 45, but if you do it here on site, uh, we're, we're, we just want to resource you. When Nicole told me her story, I was like, oh my goodness, how awesome would it have been <laughs> for you to have, been, have, have had this experience? And so uh, you, you, it may be you next that comes across someone who's in, in that moment of desperate crisis. And we want to resource you to share the love and hope of Jesus in that moment. Uh, and so that, that seminar is coming up. You can sign up today uh, and for the next couple weeks uh, in the lobby. Please be aware of that. Also, again, just a reminder, Night of Praise is this Friday night, 7 o'clock from 7 to 8. The Connection Corner will be open an hour beforehand and after. Uh, Longs Donuts, coffee, uh, time to just to come and connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ to spend time together uh, in worship and prayer. We're excited about that night, and I want to encourage you to be there. Let's pray, and uh, we'll carry on this morning. God, we love you. Thank you for giving us the freedom uh, to be here together today. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, Lord, who are being persecuted. We pray, God, that, um, that their, their testimony, that their witness would give us strength to stand up for you uh, in moments where we're not sure what to say. We pray, God, that you would strengthen them for their trials, that you would help us leverage every freedom we've got to proclaim the gospel of Jesus uh, until you come again, Lord. And we look forward to that day and speed it's coming. We pray, God, that you'd open our hearts and minds to what your word would say to us today. We pray that we would really, truly know you today when we leave. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was about six years old. My father had asked me to come with him on a hospital call. My dad was ministering in uh, rural central Illinois at the time. Uh, he had asked if I would want to come with him to, to go calling, to see somebody at the hospital. That was exciting to me as a six-year-old boy. I like, great, I get to go with dad, cool. I think he had an ulterior motive. You see, the night before, he had told my brother and I that we were going to be moving. We are going to be leaving uh, this ministry in central Illinois where my dad had preached for seven years, moving to Joplin, Missouri, so that he could take a position teaching, uh, preaching in New Testament classes at Ozark Christian College, but also because... My grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, had been diagnosed with emphysema and was dying and just wanted to be close uh, in those final months and or years, however long it took, uh, in that moment. Mom just wanted to be close to her dad. And so that was part of the reason why. And, and my dad took that, my mom and dad took that opportunity to tell my brother and I how important it was that we, we never smoke, ever, because that was a factor in grandpa's emphysema and and they just, they, they really made, I, th I think I remember mom saying something like, if I ever smell smoke on your breath, I'm going to rip your tongue out and beat you with it. Like, okay. <laughs> Six years old. That was crystal clear, okay. And so that, that conversation was fresh in my mind when we went to the hospital the next day. And, and at that time, some of you remember this, you could still smoke in public. Like inside in public. In a hospital in public in an elevator in a hospital. So we get onto the elevator, and there's a guy in the elevator smoking. I, I am that old. <laughs> and and I, I'm staring daggers at this guy, right? And my dad, now I'm a dad now, 
So I kind of think I know what my dad was thinking. He never told me this, but I'm a father now, and I think I know what my dad was thinking. I think he was probably praying fervently. Oh, God Almighty, you who shut the mouths of the lions, please shut my boy's mouth, oh, Father God. Don't let him say what I know he's thinking. The Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Apparently, my dad is not a righteous man. Because <laughs> God said no. Uh, I'm looking at this guy just, you know, stone cold. And what comes out of my mouth in that moment is, my dad says you shouldn't do that. <laughs> my dad's like, he's adopted. I don't know who this kid is. I, we want our kids to be smart, right? I mean, we want them to know stuff. We want to train them, and we want them to grow, and, and occasionally that kind of backfires in our lap. If you've got your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 13, is where we're going to be today. Today we're concluding our, our series on parenting called Hashtag Parenting Fail. Over the last few weeks, we've been using the language of you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook with this hashtag stuff to talk about some of the biggest failures in the Bible uh, and, and what we can learn from that. And I want to pause right here and say this. I just want to reiterate I don't know about you, but the things that I really know, like deep down in my heart, I know to be true is because I failed at something. (laughs) I blew it. And I learned from that, and I grew out of that. And maybe you've had the same experience where, where the stuff that you really, truly know is because you probably failed at something. God can use that. I told someone in the lobby this morning, I don't, I, I believe with all my heart that God does not waste pain That when you mess up, that he wants to redeem it. He wants to use it. He wants to help you grow out of that experience. And so I want to thank you for being here today. If it's your first time here at Chapel Rock, I would love to meet you. When we're all done, I'll be right down front. Please come down and say hi. If you're joining us online, thanks for logging in from wherever you are. We'd love to have you visit us uh, on site if you're local. And especially plan on coming back in the month of October. We're starting a new sermon series next month called The Dark Walk. And what we're going to do is talk about the seven deadly sins in the month of October. Now, there are five Sundays in October. There are seven of them. So on two Sundays, we're doubling up because they're kind of sort of similar. But the idea is over and over and over again, Scripture talks about why we should not walk in darkness. And 1 John says we should walk in the light. And so for the next month, we're going to be talking about how to do that with those specific sins, and they're kind of categorical sins. There's this one thing, and there's a lot of stuff that fits under it. And so I don't want to give the devil any free press. He doesn't need it. But we're going to talk about practical strategies to move away from sin in your life. And so the stage will be decorated in a way that kind of fits that. You'll want to come back next week to see that. But I'm excited about this next series, uh, and we'll, we'll get into that next Sunday. Today, we're looking at a kind of obscure passage. Now, if you were here a month ago for the last sermon in the Blueprint series, you heard me just skip this, basically. We skipped around it. We looked at all the rest of Acts 19 except this. We're coming back to it today. And unless you've read Acts 19 recently or you read ahead last about a month ago, you probably haven't heard this story in quite a while, maybe ever. It's an an obscure little story buried in the last half of Acts, but I think it teaches us one of the most important lessons that we as Christian parents, and and really Christians in general, whether you're a parent or not, need to know. Here's the big idea today. It is a parenting fail 
if our kids only know about Jesus, but it is a major parenting win if they actually know him. And I can't think of a better passage to teach that than Acts 19. Look at this with me, starting in verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Now let's pause right there for a second. These are itinerant Jewish exorcists. That was kind of a thing in Jesus and Paul's time. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were not the only ones who were casting out demons. Uh, It was common in that time for these exorcists to learn the name of a powerful spirit and then use it as kind of spiritual leverage in this uh, demonic uh, spiritual power encounter situation. And so that's why they say, in the name of, did you catch it, the Jesus whom Paul preaches? They, they thought that by knowing this name, that would give them power over the evil spirit. Because the, Jesus was being no, becoming known there in the area around Ephesus. That's where they are. It's in what historically was known as Asia Minor. It's western Turkey today. We don't know who this Sceva was. We do know from lists by Josephus and other ancient historians that he was not listed in the Jewish high priestly families. In other words, this guy is claiming to be a a chief priest. He's not. He might not have been a priest at all. He might not have even been Jewish. (laughs) But he's claiming this about himself. He has seven kids, seven boys, (laughs) weirdo. Um, (laughs) he takes this title to make himself sound more impressive his sons go out he sends them out and look at what happens They, they, they encounter this demon verse 15 one day the evil spirit answered them Jesus I know and Paul I know about but who are you? man that gives you chills doesn't it? (laughs) kind of creepy See, the word know and know about are, are vital to our understanding of this passage. We'll talk more about them in a little while. But look at what happens here. <laughs> then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. One guy versus seven, but the ones possessed by a demon. You see, in Jewish culture, to be naked and bleeding in public was a source of great shame And these men's cavalier attitude toward the spiritual realm exposed them as frauds. And the context of the chapter shows just how powerful Jesus' name is when it's authentic. Let's read again in verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. See, Luke wants you to understand this morning that one of the most essential parts of discipleship is actually knowing Jesus, not just knowing about him. If you don't really know Jesus, you can get in over your head spiritually, and you may find out that your spirituality is a lot more shallow than you think it is. And as parents... We must make sure that Jesus is not just a trivial acquaintance for our kids and our grandkids. 
They actually have to know him. It is not enough to just know about him. See, in order to do that, we've got to make sure that we actually know Jesus too. The the text in Acts actually hinges on this word, know. There are two different words that appear in this passage. It's translated the same in English, but there are two different words in the original language. The first one where the demon says, Jesus, I know. That word for knowledge is speaking of understanding something as it really is, probably from some personal experience. Now, you understand what demons are. Demons are fallen angels that at some point, maybe before the creation of the world, we don't know exactly when, Satan rebelled against God. He and a third of the angels fell from heaven. They were corrupted. They became demons. So when when the demon says, Jesus, I know, he's speaking from personal experience. He has met the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. He knows him. They've met. At one point, this demon worshipped him. But we get this other word for know here. The other word translated know is how the demon describes its awareness of Paul. It knows about him. This word appears less often than the first one. It's always, in Luke's writings, always used in a secular sense. It never represents spiritual knowledge. It's always secular knowledge. But it's based more in practical capability. In other words, it's possible that the demon had already had some interaction with Paul. In fact, if you look back at chapter, nine, uh, chapter 19, verse 12, it says that sometimes Paul's, you know, the, his sweat rags and stuff were used to cast out demons. Now, whether or not Paul knew about that is a matter that the scholars debate. But he, he, in Ephesus already, the demonic community has heard about Paul, this guy named Paul who's coming in, and he's an apostle. He's a representative of Jesus. He's, he's tight with Jesus. <laughs> he's heard about Paul. <laughs> and he says, who are you? Essentially, what we see in this text, I think, is an example of a parent, Sceva, or Skeva, depending on how you pronounce it, who's seemingly content for his sons to know about God, but not actually know God. And this whole passage hinges on that idea, that contrast. So how do we really get to know God? And more importantly, how do we teach our kids and grandkids to know God and not just know about well, I looked at the other places in the New Testament where the word know appears and is used in this idea and kind of filtered it through Acts 19. And I think that there are three very significant action steps that the New Testament presents in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians when they talk about what it means for us to know Christ. And I believe if we will implement these things in our lives, in our homes, and teach them to our kids, we can avoid some of the major parenting fails in life, and specifically this one that Sceva did. The first one is that we have to change identities. We have to change identities. When I looked at what the Bible has to say about knowing Christ, one of the first passages that came up was Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. I want you to look at this. Here's Ephesians 4, 20 to 24. He says, you, however, did not come to know Christ in that way. Same way where he says, Jesus, I know. Same word. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to, get this language, 
Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to put on the new self, oh, excuse me, which, uh, to be made new in the attitude of your mind, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What this is telling us is that if we're going to avoid this parenting fail, we need to have a change in our own identity. If you're going to know Jesus, your identity has to change. It's got to shift from being what you were before to who you are in Christ. Your identity needs to change. We need to put off the old self and be made new. I try not to do this very often. Can I share a pet peeve with you? It bugs me when I hear Christians say, well, I'm just a sinner. Well, I'm just a sinner. By habit, yes, but not by category. You are a saint because of the blood of Jesus. If you have accepted him as Lord and Savior, if you have been baptized, if you have let the Spirit of God dwell in you, you are a saint according to this book. Live like it. Be one. Sinner by habit, yes, not by category. Change your identity. Jesus changes your identity. You're not old and broken anymore. He's making you whole because of his Holy Spirit. Now, you still have habits that need to die, need to be crucified. But this identity needs to change. Maybe you heard about it, maybe not. There have uh, been a couple school shootings lately, one out west. But there's actually one this past week in Mattoon, the town we moved here from. One student came in, shot one other student. The, the, the one who was shot is okay, recovering in the hospital. Um, pretty traumatic for a small town, very unusual, that kind of scenario. But it brought back memories of Columbine, and you remember hearing about that. Maybe you've heard the story of Cassie Bernal. She was one of the students killed at Columbine High School. She grew up in church. She came from a nice family, had a nice life, and then it changed. When she entered high school, not at Columbine, a different school, she changed peer groups. She became friends with some teens that were into all sorts of bad stuff, lots of destructive behaviors, and even including some satanic rituals. And soon Cassie and her friends were praying to Satan for the death of one of their teachers and their parents. Cassie's mom found some letters that she had written to her friends describing their plans for murdering their parents. When they confronted Cassie, everything it got worse, not better. In fact, they had to tell the police and, and get the other parents involved, and then the other parents started blaming the Bernal family for this whole thing when they were trying to stop what could have been a, a, a multiple murder scenario. Life with Cassie and her friends got so bad, the family decided to break off all their relationships. They moved across town. She started at a new school. They did keep in touch with their church. Their church supported them and prayed like crazy for them. Eventually, they got Cassie to go to a youth retreat, and at that retreat, she repented. She gave her life to Jesus. And for the next year, Cassie's life changed slowly as she began to give more and more of her life away to the Lord. It was consistently becoming more conformed to the image of Christ, and it would change forever when two of her classmates came into the school with guns. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but Columbine was not supposed to be a shooting. It was a bombing that failed. The bomb went off, but it didn't do the damage that they thought. So that's when they went into the school with the guns. And you may have heard the story about what happened next, that Eric Harris, one of the shooters, asked her if she believed in God, and she said yes. Uh, That's the title of the book about her life right before he ended her life. It's a powerful story, uh, but it is just that. It is a story. It didn't, that part didn't happen exactly like that. It was widely reported, uh, but what happened was in the confusion, one of the witnesses who survived saw Eric confront Cassie and got confused. It was actually another girl named Valine Schnur who did confess her belief in God, but the killer was distracted. He didn't shoot her like he did Cassie. The true story is, I think, even more compelling that Cassie was this girl who had worshipped Satan, this girl who had plotted to murder her parents, in that moment was praying. She was on her knees in that moment of stark terror, praying, calling out to God, speaking to the one who saved her to do it again. She had been so thoroughly changed. Her identity had been so thoroughly transformed that in that moment, she cried, she called out to God. She spoke to the one who loved her, who saved her. Parents, it is vital for your kids to see you being the new person that Jesus recreated you to be. Not just as a model for them, but also because... That's what keeps the faith in your home from becoming a trivial thing. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that a big part of the reason that Cassie's life changed was because her parents authentically lived the Christian faith in their home. That when she looked at her parents, she saw an authentic example to the best of human ability of what Jesus should be like. And it changed her. Listen, friends, Christianity cannot just be a mask that you put on on Sunday morning and you take off and leave in the car when you go out to go get chicken for lunch. You got it all the time. It's who you are. Your identity needs to change. And when you consider the message of Ephesians 4, we understand that we can help our kids change identities by valuing truth in our homes, by confessing sin, and calling out the wrong desires in our own lives, and gently in theirs too. If you want to see your kids and grandkids love Jesus, then when you blow it, confess own up to it. Say, call it what it is. Kids, that was a sin. I shouldn't have done that. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? I had to do it again this week. It's not fun. But I'm trying to raise these kids to love and know Jesus. <laughs> See, we do this by changing our attitudes as we move toward righteousness and holiness. When your kids see you grumbling, when your grandkids see you grumbling about doing the right thing, it teaches them, everything communicates something, it teaches them that righteousness is a burden, it's a pain in the neck. And so some of you may need to adjust the attitude you have about your faith at home. Some of you may need to adjust the way you speak about your relationship with Jesus or even your church at home. 
Your kids need to see you living out that changed identity. And when you really know Jesus, when you really know him, it will change who you are. There's a second step in making sure that our kids know Jesus, and it's to share sufferings. Sharing sufferings. The second thing we learn about how to really know Jesus and not just know about him is that he calls us to share in his sufferings. Look with me at Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a vital part of the process in becoming like Jesus and making sure that we really know him. Paul says he wants to know Christ. So how's that going to happen? How does he plan to do that? Well, he says, I'm going to share in his sufferings. What's that mean? Does it mean that we have to, like, get scourged by Romans and get crucified on a cross? Uh, No, but you do need to die to yourself. It's part of what I talked about last week. Last week, another way that we help our kids really know Christ is how we respond to suffering. Now, you shouldn't create suffering for yourselves. The Bible's pretty clear about that. He says, the Scripture says, if you suffer for doing wrong, it's your own dumb fault. That's the Casey Scott translation. Don't create suffering for yourself, but God's grace helps us bear up under the weight of suffering that when we experience it the same way Jesus did. Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus learned obedience from his suffering. Part of the way that we know Christ is by being faithful to him when you're hurting. That when you are in pain, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, when you're experiencing pain, part of the way that, that, you, become, that you know Jesus is how you respond to that suffering. It creates the image of Christ in you. Someone once asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? And his response was, as you can imagine from Lewis, utterly brilliant. He says, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. Parents, if you want your kids and grandkids to become like Jesus, to really know him and not just know about him, they need to see you endure your own sufferings with grace and they need to see you willingly enter into the suffering of others to bring hope and wholeness. See, when you share the sufferings of others, which is exactly what Jesus did when he lived among us, he shared our sufferings, that creates the image of Christ in you. It causes you to know him. So invite your kids into that process with you. What if your family decided to sponsor a child with Lifeline? What if your family, you and your kids, maybe together as a group, decided to sponsor a church planter in Nepal from Disciple Makers? What if your family volunteered together at the local food pantry? Do you think as they began to see what others are going through, that might shape the image of Jesus in them? It would give them compassion. It would give them a sense of care for others and being others-oriented and not self-oriented. See, as your kids enter into the sufferings of Jesus, it teaches them what it means to really know him. There's one more step, and it's this. We need to find treasure. Now, that part sounds fun, doesn't it? Sufferings? I don't know about this. Finding treasure? Oh, boy, sign me up. See, that's the way Paul describes knowing Jesus in Colossians 2, verse 2. Look at this. He says, my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, 
so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, Paul makes it clear in this passage that Jesus Christ is the repository of the mystery and wisdom and knowledge of God, and it's a treasure He says, I'm I'm telling you this so that you don't get deceived. When you have the treasure of Jesus, you're not going to be fooled by fine-sounding arguments. And here's my question, parents, grandparents, do you treat in your home, do you treat knowing Jesus as a blessing, as a privilege, as a treasure? Or is it just what we do on weekends because, well, we're in America and we've got to go to church, right? You see what Paul is saying here? When you and your kids see knowing Jesus as a treasure and an honor, then that will keep you from being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. If you want to ensure that your kids and grandkids maintain their faith when they go off to college, you need to foster the practices of treasuring and honoring Jesus in your home. And you can't do that if he's just a trivial acquaintance. If he's just somebody we kind of sort of know. You have to know him. And when you do that, there are riches and treasures you can't even imagine. Beth Morosky was 22 years old. She was taking Italian II as her foreign language in college. And her teacher gave her a a task. He said, you are going to have to give a presentation to the class on an Italian-American celebrity in Italian. So you've got to speak to the class, second year Italian, uh, on an Italian-American celebrity. You pick anybody you want. And she picked former boxer and actor and talk show host, Tony Danza. So to gather her information for the presentation, Murawski contacted producers from his television show, and they got, you know, trying to get photographs and background information. She did not know that the producers told Tony who contacted her teacher and asked if he could arrange for a surprise. So on the day that she got to give her presentation, she got up and looks at the back of the class, and standing by the back wall is Tony Danza. She did her presentation in Italian, knowing that he speaks the language. And then he got up, and they took this picture. Um, She's pretty gobsmacked. Following the presentation, the class got another surprise. Tony got up and basically said, I'm just thrilled that you guys are learning about the heritage of where I come from, and uh, I want you to learn everything you can about it, and so I'm sending you all to Rome for a week. So they got an all, the whole class got an all-expenses-paid trip to Rome. You see, for Beth, meeting Tony Danza was far more exciting than researching him for a presentation in class. And in an infinitely greater and better way, the same is true of Jesus. Knowing him is far better than knowing about him. And the rewards are way better than a trip to Rome. So let me give you some practical ways to do this, to treat Jesus like a treasure in your home. Family devotions are important. You need to make that part of your family's routine. But even if you don't have a reading from a Bible or a devotional book or some, something, 
you should at least have one non-mealtime prayer with your kids every day. If, if all you do is pray, do what my parents did. Every day before we walked out of the door for school, they prayed with us. Mom, like at times, my mom made us run to catch the bus because we had to pray. Now, I could have walked leisurely if we didn't take the time to pray, but mom, we are going to pray. I don't care if you run and get there sweaty. doesn't matter. We're going to pray. And so we did. Now, do you understand that if you pray for your kids, 180 days of school year, 13 years of school, including kindergarten, that's 2,340 prayers. You can double that if you decide to just pray for them at bedtime every night. Can you imagine praying with your kids? If you prayed for them before they go off to school and you prayed for them every night before they, with them before they go to bed and, and maybe just randomly scattered through some other times when you hear about something that, hey, kids, let's pray about this. You might pray with your kids, listen to this, 10,000 times before they leave your home. Is that going to change them? When you start to treasure Jesus, when you treat knowing him like a privilege and an honor in your home, it changes your kids. It changes your grandkids. And it will give them the strength and moral fortitude they need to stand up for Jesus when his name is trashed in public, when it's treated like a swear word. Seth Wilson, the longtime dean of Ozark Christian College and namesake of the library, told the students at the college over and over again, who we teach you to love is more important than what we teach you to know. The same is true for your kids. Immediately following our passage, due to the report of what happened with the seven sons of Sceva becoming known, the region experienced a revival. It was filled with the holy fear of God. People turned away from their occult practices. They burned their magic scrolls. They initiated an authentic relationship with Jesus. And the good news for many parents is that because of the grace of God, even major parenting fails can become a means by which God's power and grace change people's lives. We never hear what, what, what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, but we do know that the church in Ephesus ultimately becomes the largest, healthiest, most vital church in Asia Minor, and it was filled with people who really did know Jesus. And my challenge, my question for you today is this, do you know him? Or is he just a trivial acquaintance? Do you know Jesus? If you have never taken that step to say, yes, I really want to know him because he lives in me, he lives in my life, you're going to have an opportunity to do that right now. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing together. And if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, today is your day. Now is your time. Don't wait. You can know him in a way you've never known before. When you respond to Jesus in faith and you confess him as Savior and Lord and are baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit to live inside you. You'll know him in a way you've never experienced before. If you've never done that, you can do it right now when we sing. Maybe you need to have a conversation with a leader. You can go to the next step room in this time. Maybe you have a situation in your life where you need someone to pray with you. You come to the front as we stand together and sing. Let's stand this morning.